All right, good evening. Welcome back to the Mythgard Academy. This is session number 15 of our uh, uh, our discussion of Sir Thomas Mowry's Mort d'Arthur. Uh, thanks for joining us. So, uh, <laughs> Zach is just teasing me so that he didn't expect me to start class until the end of the inning. Um, so, uh, <laughs> <laughs> let me, uh, uh, let me, it's, uh, people who were here last night already know what I'm going to be talking about. Uh, and my apologies for those of you who are totally outside this particular loop, but I am a big baseball fan. It's one of my favorite things. And uh, I live in New England. I've been a Red Sox fan since 1985. So uh, the Red Sox are in the World Series this week. So I have to tell you, this was. Um, Tricky. <laughs> this was tricky. Uh, I, I I deliberated uh, as to whether or not I could go through with having class while the World Series was happening, and I decided in the end uh, that uh, I would compromise with myself. And this was my compromise that I would go ahead and hold uh, hold uh, class today, yesterday, and today during games one and two. But if the series were to go six or seven, I'm I'm not I'm not going to do that. So uh, should the series go to seven games, I will cancel class next week, uh, and uh, and then we're not going to do class during game seven. However, that's um, um, that's uh, but we're going to have class tonight. I can't promise to be uh, wholly undistracted at all times. Um, but, uh, I did reasonably well last night, uh, 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 maintaining class, despite the fact that, uh, the Red Sox are in the World Series. So my apologies, uh, 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 for that, <laughs> Zach says I'm sharing the screen with the game. That's good, Zach. It's actually kind of very nice and vicarious for me to know that on your screen, uh, the, 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 the World Series game and I are both, uh, are both there in the same space. That's good. Um, yeah, Tarlani was asking, does a love of baseball indicate which of the three estates you belong to? This is an excellent question, actually. And uh, I, I don't, uh, I'm not sure exactly which one it would, uh, it would, it would correlate with. I think it's, <laughs> I don't know. It might be a second estate thing, possibly a, possibly a first estate thing. I feel like, I feel like American football uh, is really the the sort of the third estate uh, 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 sport, but I don't know. Basketball might be more second estate. It's a great question, Tarlani. I'm not really sure, um, but uh, anyway, <laughs> the Batatores. Exactly, exactly. Torres uh, <laughs> joke. That's it. Um, but um, so okay. Anyway, to just. Bear with me. There is a there is a a small and non-zero chance that I might get <laughs> excited in a way that is not going to make sense to a lot of you at some point during class. Like for like, as I speak right now, of course, the Red Sox are at bat with the bases loaded and two outs in the bottom of the fifth. So you know, like I'm sorry, but anyway, um, depending on what Steve Pierce does here, uh, I might there might be exclamations. Uh, which will still be family friendly. Um, that's the um, uh, that's the story here. So okay, uh, that aside, two other quick announcements. First, I just wanted, of course, to mention it is LA Moot in a matter of days. The day after tomorrow, I will be 
on an airplane flying out to Los Angeles. Uh, so looking forward to connecting with people down there in Southern California. Um, I hope that you, if you're around, you'll be able to to come join us. If you are free this, if you're in um, Southern California and are free this Saturday, please do uh, uh, feel free to come and uh, and join us. We you you still can even now um, uh, register. Uh, go to lamoot.org or to signumuniversity.org. Uh, scroll down a little bit uh, to events, and uh, uh, that'll you can you can still register. As I say, also in two and a half weeks from now, we have Magnolia Moot uh, down in North Carolina for our uh, for our our friends down south. So, um, Charlotte, North Carolina. Um, is where we'll be on November 10th. So you can come and join us for there. And actually, uh, if you have, uh, if you want to pitch something, if you want to be on a panel or, or uh, uh, give a presentation, I think that uh, they even extended the the um, uh, the opportunity to make proposals for that too. So you can still you can still uh, send a proposal to that. So anyhow, um, that's uh, um, that's going to be a lot of fun. Oh man! <laughs> All right, Brian. If you're watching the game afterwards, that is super dedicated, and I will try not to spoil it for you. So I'm going to say nothing about what just happened at all. No comments about that. Um, <laughs> for Brian's sake. Because, Brian, I totally know how that is. I totally know. How, there have been several times, for instance, when I have been uh, uh, like recording something to watch afterwards and, like, at you know, in like the last five minutes of class, someone will make a reference to something which like which you know spoils the outcome, and I'm like, oh man, I was so close. Anyway, so uh, yes, yes, um, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, I, I, it's Tarlonio. It is a little tricky to um, uh, think about <laughs> uh, applying some of the. Uh, uh, some of the, uh, the 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 Mallory combat sequences uh, to uh, to <laughs> in a baseball context. Um, yes, hopefully, hopefully there will be no point uh, in this evening's game where the announcers feel compelled to use the word brain pan. Um, let's hope that uh, just uh, uh, doesn't arise. My second announcement before we get started here tonight is uh, that I wanted to uh, remind you, I announced this last week, but I just wanted to remind you through uh, today's the day, I believe, uh, the anniversary uh, of the death of Chaucer. We don't know the date of his birth, so the only date we have to celebrate is his death day. And uh, so today is the death day of Chaucer. And um, uh, so we are celebrating Chaucer's death day uh, by offering a special on the Anytime Audit enrollment uh, for the Chaucer two class the canterbury tales class um so that's uh, only 75 dollars uh, uh tuition between now and the end of the month now on the 31st uh so uh if you haven't had a chance to uh look at that again just go to signum signum and uh there's a big uh, uh a big link to it right there at the top of the page um so uh, that was a such a fun class and uh, if you're um if you're uh if you're interest in middle english has been at all peaked uh by maori uh chaucer's kind of like the real deal not that maori isn't real right maori's middle english is totally legit but it's much more like modern english right so um uh chaucer's is uh sort of a, a step back further uh uh back up the philological chain and is uh uh chaucer of course is such a delight uh delight is really the word that i always use for chaucer i i, I don't know I don't know any author 
who is more purely fun to read and who seems to be having more fun writing than Chaucer. Um, uh, anyway, uh, really, uh, really lovely. Um, yeah, cool. Um, all right. Yeah, it would be a great Christmas gift, Karita. That is absolutely true. And you can do that, by the way. Yeah, you can if you want to if you want to give uh, give the gift of a course to others. That's uh, we have a we have a thing for that. So just go to the link and you can uh, it'll it'll ask you at the beginning if you're uh, getting the course for yourself, if you're or if you're wanting to purchase it for a gift. So, yeah, that would be you would be the coolest and and like most hardcore geekiest uh, uh, secret Santa ever, right? To give the gift of the Canterbury Tales to somebody. So, anyway, yeah, that'd be great. Okay. Um, <laughs> Tarlonial says, "What day did King Arthur die?" So we can get those courses at a discount. Yeah, Tarlonial. So actually, funny story about that. So I was uh, I was um, I was listening to the audio recording uh of this i in the the audible version that we talked about at the beginning of class so i'm listening to that in the car when i was going to pick up my son matthias matthias gets in the car and he looks and of course i have a you know audible on my like little carplay display uh display my my apple carplay display and uh you know so it lists like you know that i'm i don't know what 12 hours out of 36 or something like that he's <laughs> like He's like, so that means the death of Arthur, right? And I said, yeah. And he says, it took him 36 solid hours to die. And I'm like, well, it's a little more complicated than that. Um, but um, anyway, okay. With that, let us get back to the highly serious business of uh, uh, Sir Tristram. Now, of course, it's not exactly Sir Tristram that we're getting to yet. we got to finish up Sir Gareth, and then we'll get to Sir Tristram, who is really quite something different. Um, uh, I had a few um, alternative... I, I had a few remarks to say about our alternative hero, our alternative knight, uh, Sir Tristram, but let me wait till we finish up Sir Gareth first. So you'll recall, last time we had the really fun uh, amorous hijinks of, of Sir Gareth and uh, Dame Leoness who do, of course, then get married, right? So Leonette, the sister, who's, like, we're not told this explicitly, but must be the older sister, you'd think, right? Um, at least she acts like it. Um, and who, uh, it, you know, the person who can reassemble the heads of knights that have had their heads minced um, are... Uh, uh, Anyway, she she succeeds in preserving their chastity against their will, right? Um, uh, so that they, in fact, make it to their wedding night. Both virgins still, it seems. Uh, which I guess is a relief for everybody involved. Um, the fact that they end happily ever after in marriage is actually kind of interesting. Um, and... Uh, another sort of example of, or sort of a step in the, uh, what, the Sir Lancelotification of the, sort of the morality of the Knights of Arthur's Court, right? Um, but uh, anyway, let's, um, um, let's, yeah, yeah, Zach, the Book of Sir Gareth is, is really, it's, it's it's pretty special. Those two these two books that we're just finishing now, uh, the book of Sir Lancelot and the book of Sir Gareth. I mean, it's uh, it's really hard to top those. As I said at at the end, you know, the last two books, the book of Lancelot and Guinevere, and the book of the most piteous death of of King Arthur. 
are the greatest. I mean, those are those are really uh, the the absolute best parts of the story where where Mallory is is writing at really his highest level. But um, it's uh, it's it's really hard to 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 surpass uh, these books in the middle for just pure fun, I think. Um, yeah. OK. Um, so let's get, so as I say, we, uh, he was, we just, we had a bunch of jousting. I, I left out many of the tournament or sort of much of the tournament action there. Um, uh, except of course to say that, uh, Sir Gareth, uh, 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 did really well, but first we have the, this ring business. Remember, it's just been revealed that they all live in the Isle of Avalon. This has all been taking place in the Isle of Avalon. So maybe, in retrospect, uh, chopping up a dude's head up into 100 pieces and then having them reassembled might be less weird than it seemed at first, perhaps. Um, Than Dam Leones sighed unto Sir Gareth, Sir, I will leave you with a ring of mine, but I will pray you, as ye love me heartily, let me have it again when the tournament is done. For that ring increaseth my beauty much more than it is of myself. And the virtue of my ring is this, that is, green will turn to red, and that is, red will turn in likeness to green, and that is, blue will turn to wheat, and that, that is, wheat will turn in likeness to blue, and so it will do for all manner of colors. Also, who that beareth this ring shall lose no blood. I love that. P.S. It will also prevent you from bleeding at all. Uh, I mean, like, obviously, the sartorial effects of, you know, the changing color is the primary function of the ring. In addition, it will also ensure that you don't die, right? So, as a side effect. And for great love, and if you do bleed, it would be green, which would frankly be weird, right? Um, And for great love, I will give you this ring. Or rather, shouldn't she say, I shall lend you this ring? Um, uh, so the ring is, yeah, Bruce, the, it's, 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 I, there's a certain connection to Excalibur Scabbard, right? Which again, Bruce, as soon as we learn, right, that this is all happening in Avalon, again, that seems kind of less surprising, right? Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, Tarlonio, I, she, when she's wearing the ring, I don't know what color she normally is, right? It's, I, I don't, I don't really understand, and what like the the chromatic effect has to her beauty exactly. Um, I'm not really, I'm not, I'm not really, I don't really get the ring all that much. Um, uh, and yeah, it's it's it doesn't seem. I mean. Again, Karita, apart from the the rider at the end, right? Oh, and P.S. It'll prevent you from dying. But before that, like the you know, it is true. I too, Karita, have never really said to myself, you know, what I would really, really like is a ring that will like change the color of stuff that I'm wearing uh, randomly. But of course, this is a ring which is very specifically calculated to serve Gareth's desire. His reaction is priceless. Like, he's like, oh, that's that's just what I need, right? Because what I want more than anything else is to remain concealed uh, and to prevent me being recognized. And this will certainly prevent me being recognized, right? Because, um, uh, uh, because I, I can... Um, uh, not. It's not just that he will be a, a a strange color. He'll be like shifting colors, right? So uh, no one will be able to tell who I am. So 
Yeah, as Tarwanio points out, it's like a reverse mood ring, right? Instead of you turning the the ring colors, it turns you different colors. That's exactly that's exactly it. Um, so, uh, the magic ring, which, as I say, it 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 serves his ends, right? And honestly, I kind of wonder. It's so perfect for him here, right? That. It, it, it almost seems like it's been, you know, it is, you know, she's giving him this ring uh, for her great love, right? Um, like it's been whipped up for him on the spot. Um, in any case, it's certainly meant to be, right? Um, why is um, Gareth's focus on being unrecognized, right? On not being known is understandable at first once we get the context, right? Uh, that is, remember Kay's initial theory about Beaumains and, and, you know, that he was really a peasant just pretending uh, and that he wasn't truly a knight um, was plausible under the circumstances because most of the time, as we can see, all knights want to increase their worship, Right. That's a standard rule. Everybody wants to be known for the good things that they do. So Gareth's obsession about concealing his name, concealing his identity, nobody guessing who he could possibly be or where he came from um, is odd. It's countercultural. Right. And uh, we talked last week about how it seems to be kind of a, a fourth son thing. Right. Like he really wants to prove himself on his own and not just be coming in on the coattails of his older brother or, of course, most importantly, his super famous uncle. Um, he is not going to be merely the beneficiary of nepotism. He is going to be uh, he's going to establish his name on his own. But the thing is, he's done that. Right. Mission accomplished. That is all set. Why is he still so obsessed about uh, differentiating himself? And I, my theory about that um, is what we begin to see, especially towards the very end of the story. Um, in order to try to answer that question, that is, why is he still so upset? I mean, the secret's out, right? Everybody knows who he is now, and he's already proven himself. I mean, the whole chromatic brotherhood and and you know the red knight of the red lawns like he's done the stuff he's he has established himself as and we had that clearly remember the whole leaderboard thing right with sir person to vend i mean as he said if you go on and beat the red knight of the red lawns then this is gonna you know you're gonna establish yourself as at least the fourth best knight in the world right um so if he's known at this tournament it's not going to, there's no way that's going to decrease his worship or lead anybody to question him being a proved knight, as he said. So what's the point? What's the effect of him concealing who he is? And my answer to that is that he wants to measure himself against Arthur's knights specifically. We see what happens, right? Later on, when he's fighting Sir Gawain, and neither he nor Sir Gawain know who each other is, right? And Leonette again comes in and intervenes and uh, uh, tells Sir Gawain that he's fighting Gareth. And what what happens? As soon as he does, Sir Gawain throws down his sword and shield and, and refuses to fight anymore, right? Oh, my brother, why didn't you tell me that it was you, right? Um... Gareth wants to be 
the stranger interloper knight at this tournament in particular, so that he can make the final step and measure himself against all the other knights of Arthur's court, who will... And it will be awkward to do that, or even just impossible. Like, he might, they might avoid him on the field. Um, there are a bunch of, a, there are a bunch of reasons why, right? I mean, first of all, this is Arthur's nephew. Who wants to be the one who uh, 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 knocks Arthur's nephew's block off, right? I mean, oh, it's Arthur's young nephew. Let me take him right down, right? That'll, I'm sure, endear me to everybody. And ne- not to mention his older brother, and nobody really wants to get on the bad side of Sir Gawain. So, anyway, there's, um, uh, there's, I think, but again, if he's a stranger knight, and if nobody knows who he is, then he will have the freedom of the field. Everyone will fight him, and there won't be any restrictions, there won't be any hesitations, and that seems to be what he wants. And that, I think, makes a certain amount of sense, actually. Um, Karita likes how casually the dwarf rats him out. Yeah, his dwarf undermines him, right? Uh, clearly, because his dwarf is tired of this whole secrecy thing. Uh, not for himself, right? His knight, his knight, his dwarf seems to be more uh, sort of eager for the worship of of his knight, you know, for the for the worship of... Uh, of Gareth than Gareth himself is, right? Uh, so the dwarf kind of fixes it so that everybody figures out who he is, right? Um, and Gareth is kind of mad about that, but the dwarf is kind of unrepentant about that, right? He kind of wanted everybody to know um, because he's worried that Gareth isn't winning enough reputation. I think Gareth is a little more willing to play the long game. Like, he knows how this is going to pay. Sooner or later, it's going to come out who that strange knight was. And once it does, he's going to receive plenty of worship. The dwarf, not willing to wait on that, right? Um, An interesting moment is when uh, Arthur and Lancelot have this exchange during the tournament. So Gareth, in disguise as the party-colored knight or whatever he is, uh, is riding around the field and he's knocking everybody off their horses and and, uh, uh, King Arthur... Enters. So God me help, said King Arthur. That Sam Kneeked with the many colours is a good Kneeked. Wherefore the king called unto him Sir Launcelot, and prayed him to encounter with that Kneeked. Sir, sighed Sir Launcelot, I may well find in mine heart for to forbear him as at this time, for he hath had travail enow this day. And when a good Kneeked doth so well upon some day, it is no good Kneeked's part to let him of his worship. And normally, when he saith a good knight hath done so great labor, for peradventure, said Sir Launcelot, his quarrel is here this day, and peradventure he is best beloved with this laddie of all that been here, for I see well he pineth him and enforceth him to do great deeds, and therefore, said Sir Launcelot, as for me, this day he shall have the honor, though it lie in my power to put him from it, yet wold I not. So, two things here. Of course, we know that Sir Lancelot is the one knight that Sir Gareth wouldn't want to fight against. He's, like, Sir Lancelot's biggest fan, right? They had their, you know, let me earn your respect combat right at the beginning, right before he was knighted. Um, But Sir Gareth is not going to want to fight on the opposite side of Sir Lancelot, right? Um, So, interestingly... All the knights of Arthur's, almost all of them, right? Uh, Gareth positions himself against them, but he doesn't have to face Lancelot. 
because of Lancelot's courtesy. Now, um, oh, Tarlonia wants to know why using a magic ring doesn't count as cheating. Well, the whole, like, it will prevent you from bleeding to death thing is, uh, might seem like an unfair advantage. Uh, and of course, in some ways it would be. But remember, this is just a tournament. This is not battle. Um, so, it, and, you know, and, and it's not a, you know, like a combat to the death. Uh, so, hopefully, like, I, in theory, ideally, you're not receiving mortal wounds at which you're you know, from which you're going to be in, in, in danger of bleeding to death during a tournament. I mean, it happens, right? I mean, you're still riding at people very hard and jabbing them with pointy sticks. So, you know, accidents happen, but that's not the point, right? So he doesn't have an unfair advantage in anything that really sort of appertains to the um, tournament uh, itself, really. Um, but uh, anyway, okay. Um yeah, exactly. As David Erbach says, it really its its, it's job is really just to mask his identity, which is uh, not uh, not not cheating. Um, uh, huh. Brian Dimmick is wondering about a parallel between Gareth and Joseph from Genesis. Hmm. I can see a little bit youngest son thing. I mean, not quite the youngest son in Joseph's case, but, you know, definitely younger son thing. Um, there are some parallels. We don't have the same daddy issues, of course. Um, he's proving himself in a foreign country, though, in very different kinds of circumstances. Uh, more about proving himself and less about serving as the instrument. The parallel doesn't seem to me super tight, but I can see that. Though, Brian, stay tuned for a much tighter biblical parallel, I think, uh, that we'll encounter later on in tonight's class. Anyway, okay. What I want to, what I really want to emphasize here, this is a lovely, and this is going to be really important. Um, uh, this is a super important paragraph. Lancelot's speech here is super important because, uh, brace yourself, we are going to be, uh, reading our way through many tournaments in the next couple hundred pages. The Book of Sir Tristram, that big, fat, rambling book in the middle uh, of Le Mort Arthur, is full of tournaments um, in which Maori has an, like, an almost unflagging interest, right? And this is one of the challenges I know that a lot of modern readers face when reading Maori unabridged is the tournament bits in the middle where they're like, okay, like how many times can like you read about like somebody rashing somebody else to the earth and, um, uh, you know, and, and without kind of having your eyes cross. Um, I, um, I get that. This is an important kind of key, right? Remember this, because what you need to pay attention to, there's a lot of elements of the story, right? It's kind of like, well, it's, in its way, it's like, uh, it's like sports. Here I am with the World Series on, right? Um, it's like sports. If somebody who doesn't in, is completely unfamiliar with a particular sport is watching, right, with somebody who is a great fan, and there's a great play that happens, right? You know, the experienced person is like, oh, wow, that was amazing. And the other person's like, what happened exactly? Like, I don't understand. I saw the thing, but I don't really understand why that was amazing. Or worse, if somebody does something really bad, right, um, 
and you know, and 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 like does something really wrong. Um, you know, of course, baseball is full of examples like that uh, of you know unbroken rules that are are unwritten rules rather that are broken, right? Uh, which make baseball fans really upset, and other people are like, "What on earth are people even talking about?" Um, we get kind of a a key to the code here, a bunch of the code here. Lancelot again is an exemplar of courtesy from night to night, and watch because what Lancelot does here. We're going to see several knights fail to do, and others get upset, and it, like exactly why they're upset might seem puzzling, perhaps, in some ways. Lancelot will help us to, uh, to understand. Um, okay, so Arthur says, why don't you go out after that knight, because he's doing great, right? And I'd love to see a match against him. Now, I don't, you know, on the one hand, Arthur is has a kind of a rooting interest, right? He is the chief, there are two sides, right? That's how these tournaments work. You've got the one side and the other, so it's kind of, it's like fake war, right? So you've got the captain of the one side and the captain of the other side. Arthur's a team captain here, right? So he's got like the, all, you know, the, 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 you know, the all pro on the bench and he's like, could you get out there, right? Because we're losing, right? This guy on the other side is beating everybody, you know, I've got my ace in the hole over here. I want to, you know, I'm going to I'm going to call in my closer and we can still pull this out. Right. So Arthur is thinking like a team captain here. Lancelot is thinking like a courteous knight. Right. And he he says, no, I do not want to uh, go in and fight this guy. And these are the reasons why he gives lots of reasons. And they're really, really interesting. OK, first. I may well find it in my heart to forbear him as at this time, for he hath had travail enow this day. So the first thing, dude, this guy has been out there all day long, right? He has been, he has fought dozens and dozens of, and I've been sitting around, right? So I'm fresh. I'm complete, you know, I'm, 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 uh, I don't, I'm, I haven't broken a sweat all day long and he's at the, it's not a fair fight, right? I mean, so for me to kind of measure myself against him or to let him measure himself against me, like it wouldn't be right. Right. You know, we can do that, but we should do that under different and better circumstances. So that's the number one thing thinking about not wanting to take unfair advantage. So that's one principle we already see in Lancelot's first sentence there. Right. Second, and Juana good knicked doth so well upon some die. It is no good knicked his part to let him of his worship. And normally when he saith a good knight hath done so great labor. So uh, when you see, when a good knight doth so well, it's not a good knight's part to let him, to, to deprive him, to decrease his worship, right? So who am I to come in? I mean, it wouldn't, it would be unkind of me. This is his day, right? He has proven himself. He has beaten everybody on the field this day for me to come in at the last minute and take him down. Right? Notice Lancelot has no doubts that he could take him down, right? This is not really, there's no, there's no at all, no self-doubt in Lancelot's words here, right? Quite the contrary. He's sure he would take this guy down if they fought, right? But he says, look, if if I took him down, that would be really rude, right? That would be super rude. This is his day. Why should I deprive him of his day? Like, let him have his day, right? Obviously, this is, this is 
the day when he is establishing worship and it would just be churlish of me to come in and and wreck his day there at the last at the last second um and normally when he saith a good knecht hath done so great labor, right? Especially, again, at the very end when he's all tired and, and, uh, and I'm fresh. Again, that, that, that would just make it doubly bad, right? Now Lancelot is speculating about motivations, right? For peradventure. You know, maybe his quarrel is here this day. This is Lancelot thinking through the possible consequences. Here are the bad things that could happen inadvertently, right, for this guy. If I were to come in and unseat him, it's not only just a matter of letting him of his worship, right? Like this guy deserves to be celebrated this day. He totally has earned his victory lap today. It would just be rude of me to come and deprive him of that at the last second. But it's not just that. There might be worse consequences to that. Maybe his quarrel is here this day. Maybe he is here uh, 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 righting a wrong or do like that. You know, there is some reason he has taken a quarrel on himself and he's proving something. You know, he is that there is something that's actually being accomplished by his uh, his his jousting here today. Right. And he's accomplished it. And then I come in and wreck it at the last second in an unfair conflict. That would be horrible. Right. Uh, perhaps I so I might in doing so, not only would I be rude, I, I could be contributing to injustice. Right. I could be defrauding, in a sense, somebody right, whose cause has been rightly proven by how well this night um, this night uh, uh, has acted today. Right. He's proven his point. Let it stand. Right. Or similarly. Right. Um, peradventure, he, uh, he is best beloved with his Lottie of all that been here. Right. Maybe this he's proving himself to his lady. Maybe, you know, he has a lady and his lady has been all like, I will return your love if you prove yourself at this tournament today. Lancelot's like, dude. Right. I mean, I'm not going to. That would be awful because look at again. He's won. Right. He's done it. He's succeeded. This is not just like I'm going to throw it so that he can win or anything like that. It's like I'm just he's he's already won it. Um, He's proven his point. So um, so again, it would be. Uh, it would be, uh, um, it would be wrong, right? Again, it, you know, he would be wrong footing this guy with his lady and like, why would you do that? Right. What are the odds of, you know, what are the, 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 the rewards of that? Um, for I see well, he pineth him and enforceth him to do great deeds, right? Lancelot, again, he's an, he's a, nobody knows the jousting sport more than he does, right? He can see, like, this guy is after it today, right? It's not just that he is showing that he is better than everybody else. Like, this guy is hustling, right? This guy is, he is, he is absolutely doing everything that he can do. He has brought his A game. He is pushing it as hard as he can. He's proven something here today, right? So, and he's proven it. I'm going to let it stand. The thing that, whatever it is that he's proving, I'm going to let that stand. For me not to let that stand would be wrong, would be rude. Um, as for me, this day, I'm going to let him have the honor, right? Notice not only the thoughtfulness of Lancelot, right? The, the, it's not just courtesy in the sense of I'm being polite, um, but the, the, his willingness to think about the other knight's position, right? And what might be going on and what other things that... I mean, this is Lancelot not 
doing the opposite of just thinking of himself or just thinking of his own honor, right? Um, he's willing to forbear. Yeah, he could come in. Would it be an accomplishment for him? Would it be yet another feather in Lancelot's cap um, uh, to be able to to say like, oh yeah, there was this knight who took down everybody on the, you know, on Arthur's court that day, but then I came out and mopped the floor with him, right? Once again, establishing that I'm still number one, right? Yeah, he could do that, right? But he's not going to do that. Um as for me, this day he shall have the honor. Uh, Lancelot is not a glory hound, right? He's not a he's not going to hog the spotlight. He's going to let the other guy have it, right? Because Lancelot is he's secure, right? Um, he that his his worship is not in question here, right? His prowess is not in question here. He's got nothing to prove. This other guy obviously did. Let him do it, right? He's fine with that. But again, notice what he's essentially saying here, right? Again, this he's the star player of his team captain, and he's like, nah, nah, I don't want to come off the bench. I'm fine. Let's uh, let's go ahead and lose today. That's uh, uh, that would really be uh, what's what's fair, right? Um, yeah. David is wondering if Lancelot did choose to go out, wouldn't it earn him disworship and, and, and sort of disdain for defeating a knight who's already tired? I mean, essentially, David, in part, that's what he's saying, right? Uh, I mean, like, look, it's not going to, I don't want to do that. It would certainly do him no favors. Um, certainly, David, if he were to go out and take that guy down and then boast about it, right? If he were to take him down and be like, you know, and then um, be strutting around and, 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 uh, you know, bragging and, and throwing it in that knight's face and everything. Yeah. Then that would be a bad look, right? Everybody, including of course that knight who in this case is Sir Gareth, um, would have reason to say like, Oh, you know, great. Yeah. Uh, that's great. Sir Lancelot. Thanks. You know, that you really showed something there, right. By taking advantage of a tired opponent. Um, but I don't think, uh, you know, David, if if Arthur tells him to go out there and he goes out there and takes him down, I don't think that anyone is going to be like, oh, Lancelot is such a jerk um, if he doesn't do it in a jerky way. Right. But um, uh, but for him to demur, right, for him just to say, no, 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 I'm going to let him win. I'm going to let him have his glory is is good. Um, he is Lancelot is humble. Right. He is. uh um He's, he's, uh, he is, humility is one of his virtues, right? Um, and I know that a lot of, um, I, I know that a lot of modern readers dislike characters that are super, super good, right? You know, Lancelot as paragon of all knightliness, I know is going to, uh, uh, rub a lot of modern readers the wrong way. Uh, and they'll be really annoyed with him. Um, uh, they were much more okay with that kind of thing. All I would say is, keep in mind, uh, you know, Lancelot is, is going to have issues. He is not going to be the perfect and unblemished person uh, the whole time. So if uh, you are interested to see this, just keep in mind, this is, this is uh, Maori setting that up, right? Uh, setting up, again, it's not only that Lancelot has high standards, but that he actually succeeds in following those high standards a lot of the time, right? Um, so that when he begins to struggle with this application of those standards in practice, it's going to mean a lot more. So just be patient, is what I would say, uh, if you find Lancelot a little cloying in some ways. Um 
but David, yeah, he is kind of a medieval superhero. There's definitely a, a, a sort of an element um, of that. Um, Dollarstruck says you really don't want Lancelot on your team at the Battle of Malden. He wouldn't do that in battle, right? I mean, this is just sport, right? This is just fun. Um, uh, there's nothing at stake here except people's worship or maybe some quarrel or, or the love of his lady or something like that. But uh, but yeah, no, when the chips are down and, and uh, mortal combat is being uh, is being waged, Lancelot will not hold back. Um, oh, uh, so Bruce is wondering, why has Lancelot been sitting around all day? Uh, I, and my answer to that is humility, humility. I mean, Lancelot, he's not just number one. I mean, he's he's number one. He's not just barely number one, right? He is number one by a lot. Uh, and if he's out there, it's not sporting, you know? I mean, like, he he actually does a lot of not participating in tournaments, and mostly just for the sake of, like, letting other people have a chance, right? I mean, if he... Um, Sorry. <laughs> Speaking of uh, enormously talented number one people. Uh, sorry. Um, uh, so, yeah, if he if he just goes out there, if he goes out there and fights his hardest in every single tournament, he's going to win every time. He knows that. Everybody else knows that. Like, it's, it's pretty much pretty soon. The tournaments aren't even going to happen. Right. I mean, everyone's going to be like, OK, you know, I, I quit or I'm not even going to join the side that's against Lancelot. So um, he's kind of like the nuclear option in tournaments at this point. He's almost uh, um, he's almost uh, just like this sort of emergency backup situation, you know, um, with uh, um with these tournaments. And again, it's, it's, uh, yeah, Karita, exactly. He, he knows he would just, it's not about proving himself anymore. There is literally nothing that he could prove by fighting in this tournament at this point. Um, he would just be ruining the fun for everybody else and preventing anybody else from having a chance to achieve worship. So, um, yeah. Oh, oh that's harsh. Zach. Zach says, as a Blue Jays fan, there were times I wished the Red Sox would pull a Lancelot during the season. Uh, I hear you. I hear you. Uh, no. Uh, yeah, it's hard. <laughs> it's hard. Red Sox weren't quite at the Sir Lancelot level this year, but it's certainly the closest I've ever seen him. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Brian, I, I, I agree that... Uh, Setting out tournaments out of humility does set Lancelot apart in in Mallory, as Brian goes on to explain, where where every knight who encounters another knight at some random country crossroads immediately has to fight to prove himself. Yeah, Lancelot doesn't do that. Now, remember, we did see some things, like for instance, when he in the book of Sir Lancelot, when he dressed up in Kay's armor, that was an interesting little glimpse of kind of both ends of the thing. Right on the one hand. Um, it showed you that if he's riding around the countryside in his own armor and everybody knows who he is, he's going to have an awfully quiet time, as Kay jokes about, right? Riding home wearing uh, Lancelot's armor um, because nobody wants to fight him. So Lancelot doesn't get many combat opportunities because who's going to attack him, right? Um, but the other end of it is that we, we see that he, at least at that stage, right? In the book of Sir Lancelot, when he is still sort of 
establishing the fullness of his uh, reputation, because you'll recall that book began with him just coming home from the Roman expedition, right, when he was new, a new-made knight. So the book of Sir Lancelot is really showing and establishing his full reputation. In the process of doing that, even back then, he still had to do things like dress up in Kay's armor in order to get opportunities because uh, he was already uh, so well known. Now he's well past that now. Um, you know, it's been presumably, it's not clear how much time has been passing, um, but it seems pretty clear it's it's already been probably years uh, since the beginning of the book of Sir Lancelot at this point. Um, uh, and he is well established. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, exactly, David. He is content with the glory that he has. So it's, it's an interesting thing about humility, right? He's humble on the one hand, um, but he's not humble in the sense of not seeking any glory at all. Right. Uh, he is interested in worship. Um, uh, and in his reputation and things like that. It's not that he doesn't care about reputation, but contentment, David, I, I, I think that's more uh, more the sort of the important element of the thing. Um, Patricia wants to know how he stays battle ready. Well, for that, Patricia, I would say keep in mind, first of all, remember this is a world in which Sir Gareth can put on armor and pick up a sword for as far as we know the first time in his life and immediately be not only competent, but enorm enormously highly skilled because of his blood, right? It's who he is, right? It just comes out. Same with Sir Tor, right? Raised uh, uh, in a peasant household, and the first time he puts on armor, he is great, right? And is uh, overcoming lots of knights through his natural uh, abilities, right? Because it's who he is, and it's coming out. Um, so that's kind of the same thing with Lancelot. I mean, Presumably he practices too, but yeah, no, he doesn't need to practice because he's Lancelot. Um, okay. <laughs> I love how Sir Gareth is finally discovered. <laughs> uh, now go, said King Arthur unto divers Herodes, and bade him ride about him and aspire if ye can see what manner of knight he is. For I have sp I have spirit of many knightes this die that is upon the, his party, and all say that they knew him not. So he's... Arthur's desperate to find out who this guy is, right? Um, he's interviewed... He's asked lots of, of other people, like, you know, of the, 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 the guys on Gareth's side, right? So who is that knight? And they're like, no idea. He just came out of nowhere, man. Really no clue. Um... But at the last, an herald rode nigh Sir Gareth as he could, and there he saw written about his helm in gold, saying, This helm is Sir Gareth's of Orkney. <laughs> then the herald cried as he were wood, and many herald is with him. This is Sir Gareth of Orkney in the yellow armies. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah, it does kind of sound like Merlin was here, Josiah, though I am convinced that his mom wrote that uh, <laughs> on his helmet, right? Remember that um, uh, I, when Morgoth shows up at the court, she's like, I sent him with a perfectly good suit of armor. What happened to his suit of armor, right? Uh, it's, <laughs> and he did come out. Remember when he... Uh, when he leaves the kitchen and he's going out to take the quest of the damsel, which is Lin uh, uh, Lynette, of course, um, 
he does come out with this like sumptuous armor and cloth of gold and all that, right? Um, so presumably that's the suit of armor that his mom that his mom sent with him. But um, uh, anyway, um, so uh, <laughs> Arthur has like these like paparazzi heralds uh, swarming around him, trying to get any clue as to who this guy is, right? Um, it's written on his helm. I just, yeah. Um, I just, (laughs) um, oh, Brian, that would ruin all the fun, right? If, um, if, someone in Camelot invented a tournament registration list where everyone has to sign in with their name, that would never fly, right? Or rather, people will always give fake names. Like, if you had to check IDs uh, to be in the tournament, uh, there would you'd never get any registrations, right? Uh, that's, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, likely a bot is wondering if uh, reading would be a common skill among knights. I doubt it. Actually, um, it's possible that some would be literate, but don't forget that literacy is not a super useful skill, um, not in a pre-printing press world. Um, written material is quite scarce, um, and you don't. It's no hardship to go through life without literacy. Uh, knowing letters is a is a uh, a, a very sp- specific skill. I mean, like to say, uh, you know, to say that, uh, you know, do you know how to read would be like saying like, do you know how to cook or do you know how to, um, uh, garden or something like that? Like useful skills, right? Good. But you know, like you don't have to be a gourmet cook to live. You don't have to read to live. Um, in a, in a, you know, in the modern world, in a, in a pro, in a post- um, in a post-printing uh, world, within a print culture, it's very difficult, right? I mean, it is an enormous handicap in the modern world not to be literate. That was not true in the Middle Ages at all. There is very a very small amount of text around, um, and even less that has to be read by you personally, right? Um, you... Um, so, yeah, it's, you know, would knights receive some, you know, sort of enough education um, th- that they would be able to to read some of them, perhaps. But again, I, that would be very far from common. Um, yeah, exactly. As Josiah says, knights are not clerks, usually. Exactly. It's a clerk. It's a specialized skill, right? Uh, you know, reading and writing. Who needs it? Uh, not very many people. One thing that I would urge... And this is a mistake that so many people make, modern people. People associate illiteracy with ignorance. And especially illiteracy with... You can be literary without being literate in the Middle Ages. Because, again, remember, it's not a print culture. 
you don't you know you don't have access to books if you can read or not you probably don't have the book right because books are enormously expensive and really rare um so the vast majority of literary consumption in the middle ages is on is is it's still a largely in part an oral culture it's not a totally oral culture um but the oral oral storytelling is still a really big part of things right so um again just because you can't read doesn't mean you don't know literature you are not well spoken and and not well educated even you can be well educated without being literate um because again actually reading things with your own eyes and forming letters with your own hand is not a big deal and not an important part of uh what it means to sort of function in the regular world for everybody except clerks heralds zachary would need to be literate that's a that's a because uh, they are keeping records of things um uh so, yes, that's why Arthur is sending the heralds out. I don't know if Arthur suspected that Sir Gareth was wearing a written label or not. But, yeah, um, uh, it's it's but yes, clearly the heralds are uh, are are literate. Um, yeah, yeah, Um yeah, David says one of the things that surprised him most about medieval literacy was the discovery that even many priests couldn't read. Yeah, I mean, and again, David, even now that's more sketchy, right? I, I Priests are supposed to be literate, theoretically, like ideally you want that to happen um, because they are the ones who are transmitting the written record. They're keeping, supposed to be keeping many written records. There are a bunch of things that they are supposed to read, be able to read uh, and to be able to transmit. Um Again, the, the the whole parish doesn't need to be able to read the Bible because they'll hear like the preacher can tell them the stories and the you know the friars can tell them they can hear this stuff right orally and so it's fine right they don't need to be able to read it themselves the priest kind of does right again he can get by without it right because he's heard the stories too but um uh but it, it's it's uh so, but yeah like parish priests. Not always literate, um, because again, there's not a whole huge literacy popula- literate population to uh, to draw from, right? Um, but but again, but an illiterate priest, I won't say it's necessarily a scandal, but it's 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 not it's not a good look, right? Unlike again, a, a, a an illiterate knight, no one's gonna no one's gonna say. Um, uh, say anything about that. That's not going to seem strange or, you know, there's nothing sort of deviant about that. There's a, there's a little bit of deviance to an illiterate priest, uh, in that way. Um, yeah. So, um, <laughs> and Matt Duke says, no wonder no one raised an eyebrow at Merlin's prophecies all over the place. Nobody could read them. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. But again, see, that's, that's one of the things that, um, uh, that's one of the things that you, uh, um, one of the reasons why you want a, a literate priest, right, is to have like at least one person in the community who can read. So if all of a sudden people go out one day and they're like, hey, so there's this like gold writing all over this rock uh, that's like in the middle of my uh, of my wheat field, um, you know, like it's good to have somebody in the community that you can call in and who can uh, read it for you. So that's uh, super useful. Um, yeah, yeah. Anyway, okay. Um, okay. Last thing about Sir Gareth, and then we'll move on. 
Um, and that's his relationship with Gawain, which is super interesting at the end. Um, Forever after, Sir Gareth had espied Sir Gawain's conditions. He withdrew himself from his brother Sir Gawain's fellowship, for he was ever vengeable, and where he hotted, he would be avenged with murder, and that hotted Sir Gareth. Sir Gareth distances himself from his older brother, his famous older brother, Sir Gawain, on moral grounds, because Sir Gawain is vengeable, right? If Sir Gawain is, if he hates somebody, he will avenge his hatred with murder. Um, and Sir Gareth hates that, right? So he uh, is opposed to how his brother acts. He is not going to be a party uh, to that. Um, the condemnation, the moral condemnation of Gawain by Gareth is a really interesting and important moment here. Um, again, showing there is there are several different schools of knighthood, right? We've got the Sir Lancelot school, the highest sort of moral um, code, right? The highest uh, uh, attempt at uh, moral purity uh, in knighthood. Sir Gawain, as we've seen, is not that, right? Um, There's a certain pragmatic knighthood that Gawain seems to be a part of, right? He's willing to do what he feels he needs to do in order to do what he feels needs to be done, right? That's that's what... um, uh, that's where, and we, remember, we saw this with Gawain early, right? When King Pellinor was put into this, you know, high position by Arthur, um, and they knew, right? Gawain and Gaheris knew that King Pellinor had killed their father, King Lot, right? Um, uh, oh, uh, conditions. Sir Gawain's conditions um, just means like uh, when he aspi- like how he behaves, like his whole effect, right? The whole, when he, uh, when he really understood the, the full Sir Gawain package, uh, that's, that's what he's talking about there. Um, by the way, this kind of happened. There are a bunch of interesting and important things that happen off stage here. We'll get some references to it. Sir Gawain does in fact succeed in murdering King Pellinor. Um, he's going to kill King Pellinor, and they're going to set on him, I think, at least two or three on one. Remember, Gaharis was all about it, right? Gaharis, who is the second brother uh, in that family. Agravain is the third. Um, and um, and then Mordred is the fifth, right? The sort of half-fifth. Uh, super sketchy fifth. Um, but uh, Gaharis, remember, was like, okay, this sounds great. Wait to kill King Pellinor until I become a knight, then I'll help, right? And he does, right? The two of them do, in fact, kill King Pellinor. And there's a bunch of um, other stuff that happens between those two families. There are some issues there. Uh, We'll get some references to it later. All right, let's move on to Sir Tristram, finally. All right, so here, let me make a few of my prefatory remarks. Um, In bringing in the story of Sir Tristram, Mallory is attempting one of the more complicated things. We've seen already, especially in those particularly rough early books, when there seem to be 
like completely different versions of the story, which were being combined, like most notably the two different um, uh, stories of the acquisition of Excalibur. Right. Was it the story that he the sword that he pulled out of the stone or was it given to him by the Lady of the Lake? Right. Um, we've seen evidence early on that. Um, Maori's goal is to sort of integrate all of these different Arthurian stories into this one big Arthurian legend, right? Um, the story of Sir Tristram is one of the most difficult and awkward in many ways, I think, um, of those integrations. Um, in some ways, of course, it's simpler. Again, it's not like the there are a couple different versions of how Arthur got Excalibur, so I'm just going to throw them both in and call it good. Um, in some ways, of course, it's less awkward than that. Is it doesn't? It's not like it exactly contains contradictions. When I call it awkward, what I mean primarily is that it's a very different strain. Um, the story of Sir Tristram is technically an Arthurian story, of course. Um, but it's in a lot of ways kind of, it was never a mainstream Arthurian story. It's always kind of like its own thing, right? Um, the story of Tristan, Tristan and his old, um, is it's an, it's, it's an independent story, um, to try to make it fully continuous uh, to fully integrate it into this world of the Arthurian court as Maori is describing it is challenging for Maori. Um, and there are some moments where we'll see some rough edges. I think Maori in general does a pretty good job of this. Um, one of the difficulties is there. Are, we'll look at one in particular where I think we can really see the seams, right? Where he is, he's taking this other story, which has this completely independent tradition, and he's kind of trying to, to, to paste it in to his Arthurian world. And there are definitely places where you can see the seams where he's pasted it in. Um, but mostly the, 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 the challenge I think is not, is not really of that kind by and large. I think that Mallory succeeds reasonably well at that. What's interesting is that the thing that he's pasting in doesn't exactly fit in a lot of ways. Um, what we get with Sir Tristram, in a sense, and, yeah, so what, what, you know, let me finish that thought first. What we get from Sir Tristram, in a sense, is, I don't know, it's not quite now for something completely different, but it's, here's a totally different model, right? Sir Tristram is not going to act like other knights. He's not going to be, he's not, he's, not Sir Lancelot, and he's not Sir Gawain. He's neither one. Um, he doesn't have the same problems that Sir Gawain has, but he certainly doesn't have the same virtues that Lancelot has. As a result, Sir Tristram is kind of more different than most of the other knights, right? Um, uh, yeah, David says it's the original crossover fiction. Kind of. Kind of. Yeah. Um He's interesting. Uh, he's interesting, but it's it's kind of less fun. The other thing that I will warn you about, um, I when I first read Mallory, unabridged, 
I mean, I loved the story of Sir Lancelot, the book of Sir Lancelot. I loved the book of Sir Gareth. And so I was ready, right? I'm like, oh, now we get Tristan and Isolde, you know, a story which I'd like heard about, but I'd never really read a full version yet at that point. So I'm like, okay, like now I'm going to get this. So I was hoping for like the, just like the book of Sir Gareth, you know, these sort of self-contained, so now he's going to do the story of of Tristram and Isolde and it's going to be awesome, right? And I'm looking at the table of contents and it's like five times as long as the story of Sir Gareth. So I'm like, awesome, right? This is just going to be, it's not like that. The, the, um, the book of Sir Tristram is a, 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 a really different situation. Um, uh, they, He's going to lose the thread. And I don't think that's an accident. Again, I don't think that he's... I don't think he's going to want to... He just doesn't seem to want to stick with Sir Tristram all that long, really. Um, And he gets distracted by other things. Um, We'll see sort of how these things emerge. But just be forewarned that not only will the book of Sir Tristram not be, you know, this sort of coherent story in the same way that uh, Gareth uh, was. It's also going to kind of peter out. Like, Sir Tristram's story is going to end off stage. Like, we're never even going to... It's just... We kind of lose the thread with Tristram. And then he kind of peters... You know, uh, uh, Mallory kind of peters out, and then he's going to be all like, okay, um... Holy Grail! <laughs> let's 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 bring this back together, people, and we go off on the quest for the Holy Grail. Um, so, anyway, um, yeah, the the book of Carita. Uh, you're certainly not the only one who would find the book of Sir Tristram not your favorite part of the book. I think that's almost universal. Uh, like I said, the book of Sir Tristram is the most skipped part of Mallory by far. Um, but there's a lot of really good nuggets in here. Uh, which I don't want to lose. And in particular, remember one of my favorite guys, Sir Palamides, and we get our first scene with Sir Palamides uh, tonight. Um, yeah. So, okay. We begin with a, a, a little, an interesting little summary of the political situation, just to clarify things. Um, and again, notice the fact that he feels like he needs to back up and explain this sort of shows how alien to the Arthurian situation in some ways, this whole situation is like, now I'm going to talk about a story which happens in the court of the King of Cornwall, right? But let me explain how this actually does fit underneath the Arthurian umbrella, right? So we get the explanation of the political situation at the start. And at that time, King Arthur regnant, right? So let's make, this is an Arthurian, like this is all under Arthur's aegis, right? And he was whole king of England, Wallis, Scotland, and of many other realms. Howbeit, there were many kinges that were lorders of many countries, but all they held their londes of King Arthur. For in Wallis were twelve kinges, and in the north were many kinges, and in Cornwall and in the west were twelve kinges, also in Ireland were twelve or three kinges, and all were under the obeisance of King Arthur. So was the king of France and the king of Bretagne, and all the lordship is unto Rome. <laughs> but notice, that's all we care about. South of France, it gets kind of fuzzy, right? There's like Italy and whatever, and there's, but anyway, and Arthur, like, technically ruling, but nobody really cares. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly, uh, exactly 
Zach, uh, nobody else might remember that King Arthur became the Roman emperor, but we haven't forgotten. Okay. I love how he doesn't even know for sure how many kings there were in Ireland, right? Who can keep track of things like that anyway? Okay. King Meliodas and his wife love each other very much. They're a happily married couple, which is kind of cool, right? And King Meliodas uh, is having one of those awkward moments where this other lady loves him and she and, and he's not into her, so she kidnaps him and holds him hostage, trying to make him love her, which seems kind of low yield. But uh, anyway, that's what's going on. And she, the wife, gets upset because the husband is missing, right? And it could be for any number of reasons, right? I mean, you know, anything, I mean, I mean, think about it, right? It could be anything from, you know, he's like run off and having an affair to he's captured by a necrophiliac sorceress. So really a whole, a full gamut of options here. So she heavily pregnant goes riding off into the forest to pursue him. Right. And that's when her birth pangs come upon her and she gives birth, but she dies for lack of help. Right. I'm not sure exactly the help, but I mean, it's by lack of help means she with her maidservant only. She is giving birth like on the forest floor with only her maidservant there. So even in the medieval context, these are suboptimal uh, labor and delivery circumstances. Right. Um. It's kind of like giving birth in the cab, Deborah. Kind of, except she's not even on the way, right? She's uh, she's going somewhere else. Juan um, So this is her her final. These are her final words. Juan see my lord, King Meliodas, recommend me unto him and tell him what pines I endure here for his love, and how I must die here for his sake for a defout of good help, and let him wait that I am full sorry to depart out of this world from him. Therefore pry him to be friend to my soul. Now let me see my little child, for whom I have had all this sorrow. And when she sigh him, she sighed thus, Ah, my little son, thou hast murdered thy mother, and therefore I suspe- I suppose that thou art a murderer so young, thou art full likely to be a manly man in thine age. <laughs> Never been quite sure exactly of the logic there. Like, what is she saying about manly men? Anyway, is this like an anti-knighthood crack, right? If you've killed your mother at birth... This means you're going to be a great man later on because I like I because you're just a killing machine. Obviously, I, is that the reasoning? Is this a, I don't I'm, I'm not 100 percent sure I'm following her there. And because I shall die of the birth of thee, I charge my gentlewoman that she pry my lord, the king Meliodas, that one he is christened, let him call him Tristram's. That is as much to say as a sorrowful birth. And therewith the queen gaff up the ghost and died. Than the gentlewoman laid here under an umber of a great tree, and than she lapped the child as well as she meeked from cold. Okay. Um, yeah, Tomas and Dolores Stroke are uh, uh, both thinking of Feanor. It's, no, it's not like Feanor. No, 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 no. No, this is just... This is, one out of every three childbirths killed the woman. Uh, maternal 
mortality rate was enormously high. Um, this, of course, is why we get the whole evil stepmother thing. As we're going to see, we're going to get an evil... Tristram has an evil stepmother, right? Stepmothers, of course, super common in noble and royal families because there is such a high mortality rate in childbirth. So the women are dying all the time and the men still, you know, especially the noble and royal men who need their heirs um, marry again uh, very frequently, right, in order to uh, make sure that their line continues. Uh, and then, of, but of course, the second wife not always super happy to let the child of the other woman who died earlier um, be the heir who inherits, right? So this is, of course, like this is where the whole evil stepmother thing comes from. Um, and uh, <laughs> James Stevens wants to know, did she really need to explain who her lord was to her servant? Uh I uh, no, <laughs> I don't think the servant would have been confused. Uh, I think it's one of those narrative things, you know. Um, yeah, I don't know. Um, yeah, well, okay, so, David, I'm not 100% sure. I'm not 100% sure, but I think that... Um, uh, I think that... When she uses the word murder to describe what the infant Tristram has done to her, she's exaggerating. I don't think this is standard usage. I don't think that, you know, normally a baby who's mom died in childbirth would be considered a murderer by anybody. I don't think that's a standard thing. I don't think this is a standard usage that she is... Uh, um, employing here. I think that this is, again, a, a deliberate, not a, exaggeration isn't quite right, dramatization. She's being a little melodramatic. You know, she's dying, so like, that's okay. But uh, I, I think that that's definitely an effect that she's going, um, that she's going for here. Um, yeah. Um, So his name means sorrowful birth, right? Um, sadness is associated with Tristram from the beginning. Um, his first exploit is a very interesting one and sets an interesting tone for his entire career. And this is, of course, the wicked stepmother thing. So the wicked stepmother, who's a super incompetent wicked stepmother, who ends up killing one of her own children because her uh, her plan about how to kill Tristram is to uh, leave out a cup of poison like <laughs> on the coffee table, right, where the kids are likely to drink it, uh, hoping that it's going to be Tristram and not one of her own kids who drinks it. I mean, it's not a good plan, even... Uh, you know, really by any standards. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, so, uh, anyway. Yeah, so, um, okay, sorry. I'm now less distracted all of a sudden. Yeah, um,
it was not a good plan, her murder plan. Um, but what happens next, of course, is uh, more surprising, right? <laughs> Tarlaniel says she should have written his name on the cup in gold letters. That might have helped. Uh, this cup is designed only for Tristram, young Tristram, to drink of it. Uh, and so she was dumped by the ascent of the barons to be Brent. So she uh, receives capital uh, uh, punishment here, right? She's condemned because this is treason. Uh, this is murder by treason, attempted murder by treason, right? Um, you know, the treacherous poisoning of, of her stepson. Uh, that's capital offense, right? So she's going to be executed or excussed. I don't, I, I, the word excussion, I don't know. I just like was like uh, giggling uh, when looking at the word excussion. I don't know why that I found so particularly funny, but I totally did. Anyway, so she's going to get excussed, um, uh, which means I guess she's in the excussion protocol uh, here as she's preparing to be burnt. Because remember, that's how women are executed, right? And reeked as she was at the fire to talk her excursion, this Sam young Tristrams knelled before his father, King Meliodas, and again, James, we got to clarify who's his father, King Meliodas. It's because nobody knows who King Meliodas is, so we got to make sure everyone's on the same page. And besought him to give him a don. I will well, said the king again. Then said young Tristrams, give me the life of your queen, my stepmother. That is unreachfully asked, said the king Meliodas, for thou oct of reek to heart here, for she would have slain thee with poison, and for thy sake most is my cows that she shall be dead. Sir, said Tristramus, as for that, I beseech you of your mercy that ye will forgive her, and as for my part, God forgive her, and I do. And it liked so much your highness to grant me my boon, for God is love, I require you to hold your promise. Sith and it is so, sighed the king, I wall that ye have her life, and sighed, I give her you, and go ye to the fire, and tuck here, and do with her what ye wall. So thus Sir Tristramas went to the fire, and by the commandment of the king delivered here from the death. But after that, but after that, King Meliodas would never have a do with her, as at bed and at board. But by the meanness of young Tristramas, he mad the king and here accorded. But then the king would not suffer young Tristrams to abide, but little in the court. Okay. Um, young Tristram does something really impressive here, right? His first exploit is an exploit of remarkable forgiveness. His stepmother has tried to execute him, uh, to poison him rather, to murder him, and he responds by saving her life for no obvious reason. His father is legitimately confused. Like, why are you begging for her life? That doesn't make sense, Tristram. You're the one she tried to have. I'm executing her for your sake, right? Um, as for my part, God forgive her, and I do, right? I forgive her, and I think when he says God forgive her, that's, he's like, I'm, I, I pray that God would forgive her, right? He's, he's, he says he forgives her, he is going to intercede with God on her behalf, right? He, he, he's, he's hoping that God is going to forgive her, too. Um, and he's asking the king, his father, that he, the king, you know, King Meliodas, would forgive her as well. And notice that he doesn't give up there. He doesn't just save her life. 
He doesn't just save her life to teach her another, uh, another awkward lesson, right? Or to make things more painful for her in some other way. Like, I'm not content with burning her at the stake. I want to keep her alive. And no, he continues to intercede for her, right? So when King Meliodas says, fine, okay, like I promised, I made a rash promise. So, you know, you can have her life, but, um, you know, I, I, I'm not, I'm done with her, right? She's dead to me. So he's not going to have a do with her as at bed or at board. So, you know, I'm not going to sleep with her and I am not going to, uh, I'm not going to eat with her. Right. Uh, so, you know, basically she is not my wife anymore. Um, I'm going to treat her as if she's not my wife. Um, which is an awkward thing in many ways to do for him. Right. Because of course he can't divorce her. Uh, so he's like being like, fine, well, I'm just going to have no wife. Right. Uh, anyway, Tristram does not give up until he made them accorded. Right. He, they make up. So the as far as I can see, King Meliodas and the formerly wicked but now penitent, I suppose, stepmom, um, kind of live happily ever after here, which is kind of interesting in lots of ways. King Meliodas has a sort of a fascinating little career here. Um, and uh, Carita, how old is he? Great question. Um, middle school? 13-ish? 14? Something like that. Um, 12? Maybe? Possibly younger? Possibly as young as 10? Anyway, he's quite young. Um, we know he's going to be very young. when he is, He's going to be knighted at like the age of like around 16. Um, certainly not more than 18. And that's several years down the road. Um, he has this whole like intermediary educational period, right? Um, so it is quite likely um, that uh, um, it is quite likely that he's substantially young. Um, David wonders if uh, murdering the son and trying to murder the other son is grounds for divorce. Uh, no, it's grounds for execution, but I'm not sure it's grounds for divorce. Uh, yeah, no, there aren't so many grounds for divorce. Remember, you know, Anne Boleyn, uh, it's not, it's not so easy. Um, yeah, Brian, no, exactly. 16 is, is, is adult. Absolutely. So that's why, like, that's why I'm guessing 16 is his age when he is knighted. Um, so, um, uh, so, uh, yeah, yeah, I, I, I think, in fact, Karita, the more I think about it, the more likely I think it is that he's younger than like 10 or maybe even eight to 10, possibly, possibly elementary school age, not middle school age. Uh, and the reason I say that is because it, it seems clear that there's a like he's still sort of in the nursery. Right. He, his his training, you know, his uh, sort of adult training that he would be having in his like, you know, sort of tween and teenage years uh, is clearly not happening yet. Right. So I think he's probably he's probably younger. So, yeah, if you're picturing this, Karita, picture like, you know, nine year old, eight year old, 10 year old around there. Um, uh, Tristram begging for the life of his wicked stepmother. Right. Who tried to have him killed. So um, it is a, it is an intriguingly um, unprovoked piece of generosity and forgiveness by Tristram. So this Tristram starting off on a really good foot here. Right. This is very good. Now, here's the other thing. And one of those places 
and I'm not saying this is a, uh, this is bad, but one of those things where you can see this is just a different tradition. Sir Tristram is a totally different kind of hero. Um, Maori's taking this, of course, from his sources, French sources chiefly. And so Tristramus learned to be an harper, passing all other, that there was none such called in no country. And so in harping, and on instrumentes of music in his youth, he applied him for to learn. And after, as he growed in meekt and strength, he laboured in hunting and in hawking. Never gentleman more than more that ever we heard read of. That's a phrase I'm really interested in. Uh, never gentleman more than ever we heard read of. Read, of course, normally means like uh, advice, counsel, like what is your read, uh, meaning like what counsel do you have for me here? Um, that's what the word read normally means. Um, uh, ever we heard read of. Um, I don't know. Uh, <clears throat> A counsel or advice doesn't seem relevant here. Um, if he didn't have the word heard, it would sound like he was just referring to the French books, like than ever we read of, like anywhere that we read in the book. Because read is still also a verb that means to read, right? Um, as well as to counsel or advise. Heard read. I don't know. Uh, strange. But anyway, okay. Um is it unusual for a knight to learn a musical instrument? Well, we have no other examples, certainly. But it's not just that he also plays the harp, which is unusual for uh, for knights. Um, but um, he has a reputation for other things, right? Sir Tristram's worship is of a different sort, right? He's not just competing on the knightly leaderboard. He's also famous in totally other ways, right? Um, uh, namely, hunting and hawking. Greatest hunter and hawker of the age, right? Um, and as the book saith, he began good measures of blowing of beasties of venery, and beasties of chas, and all manner of vermines, and all the termes that we yet of hawking and hunting is that we have yet of hawking and hunting is called the books of Sir Tristram's. Sir Tristram literally wrote the book about hunting, right? All the vocabulary that we use as hunters in the Middle Ages, right? All the different horn calls, that's what it means with the blowing of beasts right? Of venery and beasts of chase. So like all the different kind, all the different words that we have for the different vermins, like the different animals and things that we hunt or all these things, like all the terms about how to, uh, and the French source is actually even more explicit about like the ways in which you butcher deer after you kill them and everything. All Tristram invented all this stuff, right? So Tristram literally wrote the book about hunting, right? Um, Yeah, D Dolorstruck, I agree. This might seem like a, um, 
that's a it might seem like a strange kind of skill set, right? But it is a very knightly skill set. This is very this is because really there are only a few things that knights do for fun, right? Remember what do what's work? You know when you when you when a when a when a knight or a lord, you know has to you know get dressed and go into the office. What do they do? Fight in battles. That's what they do, right? Their job is to fight. So for fun, what do you do? Uh, fight, pretend battles, namely tournaments and things, or you go about as a knight adventurous, right, in order to uh, perform feats of arms in order to do good things, uh, you know, to uh, rectify quarrels and, you know, help damsels who are sitting next to wells hoping that some knight will come along and help them. Um, or you hunt things, right? So you kill stuff. Right? It's what you do, right? This is your this is your job. Um, so it's a very gentlemanly thing. And, I, and look at this. This this next paragraph is really. I mean, goodness. Wherefore, as me seemeth, all gentlemen that beareth old armies, that is coats of arms, right? So all gentlemen. He, this is Maori speaking to his contemporary audience. Okay, all of you people out there from old families, listen up. All gentlemen that beareth old armies oct of reeked to honor Sir Tristram's for the goodly termes that gentlemen have and use and shall do unto the day of doom. That thereby, in a manner, all men of worship may discover a gentleman from a yeoman and a yeoman from a villain. For he that gentle is will draw him to gentle tatches and to follow the noble customs of gentlemen. Again, uh, it's, you know, you are, you do what you are, right? What you are, it comes out, right? Um, you will draw him to gentle tatches. Um, uh, Touches uh, is a fun word. Uh, it means it's like touches, but it is like a touch of a nobleman, right? Uh, a touch of Harry in the night. No, it's uh, you know what I always think of uh, mutually. I always think of Jane Austen when I read this, and I always think of this when I read Jane Austen. Um, when in Jane Austen they talk about, uh, with say that he was a man of good parts, right? <laughs> That's not a crude physiological commentary. Uh, it means like, you know, he has excellent qualities of different kinds, right? Um, that's kind of, that's what I always think of with gentle touches, right? Um, he is, a, a, a gentleman is going gonna, is gonna to have gentle parts, right? He's going he's gonna to be drawn to gentlemanly things. Um, yes, Devra, uh, the gentle touches naturally coming out and him being drawn to gentle touches is exactly what we saw with Sir Tor. That's exactly it. Um, and yes, Rachel, as me seemeth, means that Mallory's own opinion is being inserted here. And that's pretty unusual. We do not see Mallory, the narrator, speaking in his own voice very often in this text, especially kind of interjecting like that. So, but here's my reading of this. The very fact that he does this here, Rachel, is unusual. And it seems to me an interesting coincidence, right? That he does this little, this quite unusual sidebar, right? Um, about what gentlemen today should think of Sir Tristram. They ought of right to honor Sir Tristram um, because he invented all this stuff. So this unusual sidebar comes right after this very unusual praise of a knight. No other knight is 
praised this way, right? We don't get anything about the education of any of the other knights. And anything that we do get about their... Again, great knights are defined thus far by not needing education, right? Like Sir Gareth and Sir Tor, right? Um, if, you're, if you're the right sort, it's just going to come out. Nobody has to teach you, right? The fact that we get stuff about Tristram's education, again, is unusual on its own. The fact that he's, like, literally writing books and uh, now is he literate or not or just is he just coming up with this stuff and somebody else wrote it down it doesn't really matter but he so he's inventing hawking and hunting terms and he's the greatest harper in the world like not just the greatest of all the knights it's not just that like he's able to win the like you know uh, knights of the round table talent contest you know uh, like non-knightly talent contest um, it's not it's not just that right um, it's it's um, he's the greatest harper in the entire world. There was none such called in no country, right? He's the greatest musician in the world, and invents all these. So again, this is strange. These are this is a, 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 a strange kind of praise for a knight, and I don't know if Arthur feels or Arthur if Mallory feels self-conscious about it, if he feels the need to be like, but don't think Tristram is weird or girly or something like that. Like, just because he plays the harp and, you know, it's like, he's not weird. In fact, we should totally be excited about Sir Tristram. In fact, we all owe a lot to Sir Tristram, right? Everybody um, ought to honor Sir Tristram, because this is totally a good thing. It almost sounds like him having to reassure others and himself. Like, okay, I know this is kind of, sounds a little bit weird, but like, it's totally, if you think about it, it's totally a good thing. Right? That's almost what that sounds like to me. I'm not really sure, but that's what it, um, that's what it sounds like. Josiah thinks that Tristram sounds more like a Greco-Roman hero than an Arthurian knight at this point. Yeah, like I said, the story of Sir Tristram is just, it's a very different tradition uh, than the other the, the other stories, like the classic Sir Gawain stories or anything like that. Okay. Uh, then young Sir Tristram, as yet unknighted, goes to the court of King Mark. Of Cornwall, his uncle, remember. Uh, his mom, who died in the woods and named him Tristram, was of course King Mark's sister, Elizabeth. She gets a name, incidentally, right? That's kind of a big deal, actually. Um, anyway, sorry. Okay. Uh, yeah, do, uh, do Astorica, yeah uh, uh, in the chat room, Tomas Delgado was saying this seems very French, not British. Yeah, he's super French. Uh, uh, now, I mean, honestly, my favorite version of the um, the Tristan and Isolde story is the German one, actually, by Gottfried von Eschenbach. No, not Gottfried von Strasberg. Wolfram von Eschenbach is the one who did the Parsifal story. Um, yeah, the German version is really cool. Uh, I, I, I quite like that. Uh, the French one is much more uneven. Um, well, they're a couple different French ones. Um, but it's clearly the French ones that he's drawing from here. Um, and um, notice he's educated in France. He goes down to France where he learns all this stuff and then he comes back. Um, and uh, yeah, he's just different. Anyway, okay, so King Mark beheld Tristram's and saw that he was but a young man of age, but he was passing well mad and big. Fire seer, sighed the king. 
What is your name, and where were ye born? Sir, my name is Tristrams, and in the country of Lyonesse was I born. Ye say well, said the king, and if ye will do this battle, I shall mock you knicked. Therefore come I to you, said Tristrams, and for none other cows. So he arrives at the court, and he sees that the court is being challenged by this outsider whom nobody dares to face. And this outsider's challenge has been un unanswered, and everybody in the court is terrified to take up the challenge of this foreigner who's out there defying them. And so the young boy, Sir Tristram, not yet Sir Tristram, Tristram comes to the court and is like, I will go fight that guy that everybody else is afraid of. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Several of you are saying, I warned you that we were going to get a much clearer biblical parallel later on, and this is absolutely it. This is very David and Goliath, right? This is very, uh, or rather, this scene, of course, is very David and Saul. Um, and I think that that's very important for a couple reasons. The primary reason that this is important uh, is that it casts King Mark from the beginning into the role of King Saul and gives us some pretty clear foreshadowing of the relationship between uh, uh, King Mark and Sir Tristram, right? Um, in a, so it's, it's a really fun parallel because it accomplishes two things at the same time. One, it establishes Tristram in a very heroic role, right? Sir Tristram is like King David, um, who not only, you know, is this great biblical hero, but he's one of the nine worthies, right? So, I mean, this is, this is a huge deal, right? Um, but, uh, uh, but anyway, so, so it establishes him as a really big deal, but it also establishes King Mark uh, in a much more sort of dubious, um, uh, dubious role. Um, Brian, I agree that, uh, so, uh, Brian is asking, are we supposed to understand that the demand of tribute from Cornwall is unjust? Um, I don't think it explicitly says so, but it seems we're supposed to root for Cornwall to win here. Yeah, we are supposed to root for Tristram to win. Um, is it unjust? Is it, um, no, it doesn't say explicitly, but I don't think it needs to be unjust in order to be undesirable. Uh, Tristram is fighting for the honor of Cornwall here, as he's going to do on many other occasions. Um, the fact that they don't want to get bossed around by the Irish anymore is like reason enough. Um, and it brings up one of the awkward things. Of course, there's, if you look at this situation, the King, da the David and Saul thing is great, right? That works really well, but there's one, kind of awkward thing here, which is Goliath, right? Sir Marhalt is Goliath. Now, we've met Sir Marhalt, and he seemed like a really nice guy, right? He was the one who uh, endeared us to him at the beginning by beating up Sir Gawain, right? Which was very pleasant. Um, and then he, you know, performed really well, and we had nothing but good things to say about Sir Marhalt, right? I mean, he's he seems like a great guy. And he's in the so his his standing in in the Goliath role uh, seems to be awkward in some ways, right? He's not Goliath, and he's not in a the only way the only thing that he has in common with Goliath is that everybody else is afraid to fight him, not because he's you know giant and monstrous, 
but because he's a really, really good knight and a knight of Arthur's court, right? Uh, and nobody else thinks they can take him, which they probably can't because Sir Marhalt is top ten, right? So, um, uh, but of course, there's more to that story. Um, we'll come back to that in a minute. Uh, we get the fight between Tristram and Marhalt, um, uh, which is fun. Here's the end of that fight. Thus they fought still together, more than half a die, and either of them were wounded passing sore, that the blood ran down freshly from them upon the ground. By then Sir Tristram is wexed more fiercer than he did, and Sir Marhalt feebled, and Sir Tristram is ever more well-winded and bigger. And with a michty stroke he smote Sir Marhalt upon the helm such a buffet that it went through his helm and through the coif of steel and through the brine pan, and the sweared stack so fast in the helm and in his brine pan that Sir Tristram is pulled three times at his sweared or ever he meeked pull it out from his head. And there Sir Marhalt fell down on his knees, and the edge of his sword left in his, uh, that is of Tristram's sword, left in his, that is Sir Marhalt's, brine pan. So he actually breaks off part of his sword in the brain pan of Sir Marhalt. And in case you're going to ask, no, Tristram's sword was not notched to begin with, and no, the splinter that is left in the brain pan of Marhalt does not work its way down towards his heart. Just to clarify this. Um, yeah, okay. <laughs> anyway, um, where were we? Brain pan, sword, right. And suddenly Sir Marhalt rose groveling and threw his sword and his shield from him, and so he ran to his shippers and fled his why. And Sir Tristramas had ever his shield and his sword, and one Sir Tristramas saw Sir Marhalt withdraw him, he sighed, Ah, Sir Kniecht of the Rhone Table, why withdrawest thou thee? Thou dost thyself and thy kin great sham, for I am but a young Kniecht, or knew I was never praved. And rather than I shall withdraw me from thee, I had rather be hewn in piecemealers. I'd rather you chopped me up into little bits. Um, so he's kind of mocking Marhalt for running away. Now, I mean, you know, Marhalt has received a mortal wound in the brain pan, right? And now I agree, um, David, it, it does seem a little bit surprising uh, that Marhalt manages, you know, I kind of also thought the first time I read this when Marhalt fell down upon his knees, I thought he was kind of a goner, right? There he is kneeling with a bit of sword sticking out of his brain. Um, so when he rises and runs to his ships, I thought that was surprising. Um, uh, but Brian, yeah, it seems dishonorable to run away. At least Tristram takes it as dishonorable to run away. Um, could he yield and beg for mercy? Well, remember the ter- they were supposed to be. They're doing battle to the uttermost, so they're supposed. To, one of them is supposed to die. Um, uh, does it mean that he couldn't beg for mercy? No, he probably could beg for mercy, um, but he doesn't beg for mercy. He just books it right. Um, so, uh, yeah, yeah. This is not a. This is this is. Again, hard to blame Sir Marhalt again, mortal wound and all. Um, and he's not going to last too long. Uh, you know, he's going to get back in his boat and, and head off back towards Ireland. But um, 
he's not going to make it too far and he's about to die. Um, but, uh, yeah, the, uh, um, okay. So we see Tristram's prowess. He's big, right? He's well-winded, both really great things. Both things, by the way, that are said of Sir Lancelot as well. So Sir Tristram really establishes himself in his very first battle ever. Uh, he defeats Sir Marhalt, who is top ten. So this is, this is, this is he's like, I've never even been proved before. This is my first battle. Um, the mighty stroke that he struck into Sir Marhalt's helm and brain pan, right, is a big deal. Um, but once again, the detail about the bit of sword breaking off and of course, you remember how this is going to come in relevant later on. This is going to help to identify him later on. Again, it's a different kind of story. Can you feel that? Right? It's just not how this kind of story has tended to go uh, in uh, uh, in other cases. Um, it's a story that's interested in different kinds of details, right? But again, Maori's he's incorporating it, right? We're we're going to make this work. But notice the other thing we see about Tristram. Kind of brash, right? Um, not showing the same kind of modesty that Lancelot shows. This he's expressing surprise, perhaps, right? But um, but that whole rather than I should withdraw me from thee, I had rather be hewn piecemeal, right? Uh, is um, kind of taunting, right? Kind of rubbing it in um, to the guy who, you know, out of whose brain pan he just pulled most of his sword, right? Um, and that's, that's... I don't want to be too harsh on Tristram here, uh, but it's not... It's got to make you kind of wonder, right? It's just got to make you kind of wonder uh, about his character a little bit, right? Especially given the very positive example from Lancelot that we just got. Back to the Goliath thing. Tristram is wounded. Remember, in the very first jousting pass that they take, he gets wounded in the chest. And it's that first wound that he took, uh, which is proving the serious problem. So Sir Tristramus lie there a month and more, and ever he was like to die of the stroke that Sir Marhalt smote him fierce with the spear. For as the French book saith, the spearhead was envenomed, that Sir Tristramus should not be whole. Than was King Mark, and all his baron is passing heavy, for they deemed none other but that Sir Tristramus should not recover. Than the king let send for all manner of leeches and surgeons, both unto the men and women, both unto men and women. It is interesting, right? Male surgeons and female surgeons alike, right? This was an equal opportunity medical search that was conducted. And there was none that would behold him the life. Then come there a laddie that was a witty laddie. And she said... <laughs> uh, by the way, that's got to be like... That's got to be a Twitter profile description somewhere, right? A laddie that was a witty laddie? Come on now. Okay. And she sighed plainly unto the King Mark, and to Sir Tristramas, and to all his barones, that he shall never be whole, but if that Sir Tristramas went into the same country that the venom come fro, and in that country should he be holpen, other ellis never. Thus said the laddie unto the King. 
So what? So when the king understood it, he let purvey for Sir Tristramas a fair vessel and well vitiled, and therein was put Sir Tristramas and Governile with him, his faithful manservant. I love that. Again, nobody else gets a named manservant. Who else has a named manservant, right? I mean, what? who's Lancelot's, you know, uh, 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 um, you know, manservant. We don't know, right? But Governile is a major character. Uh, uh, you know, he's a ma- he's a major supporting actor in the in the French Tristram story. So we've got to bring Governile in here. And Sir Tristramus took his harp with him, of course, and so he was put into the sea to sail into Ireland. Okay, he's got to go to Ireland because he can only be healed in Ireland because it's an Irish an Irish poison. Yeah. And David Urbach, you are exactly right about um, David points out that even Gareth's knight, a dwarf doesn't have a name. Exactly. Um, David Urbach has exactly hit upon the problem here. And this, you know, I I mentioned like places where you can still kind of see the seams where uh, uh, Maori is is trying to paste the Sir Tristram story into his Arthurian world. Um, This is the biggest one to me. Um, No David, it doesn't make a lick of sense that the Sir Marhalt Knight of the Round Table that we know would poison his spear. Sir Marhalt would never do that, right? Um, uh, that would be a huge, very huge black mark on his reputation. He would That's treachery, right? It's treason. Uh, he would be guilty of treason if he did that. Um, uh, he would be a traitor knight. That's Sir Marhalt. That's not the Sir Marhalt we know. Right. So why? 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 Well, again, one way of answering that question is you look at the sources. The fact that Tristram so that Tristram comes and fights for the to to uh, release Cornwall from the truage to Ireland is part of the original story. Um, that Tristram takes a wound which turns out to be poisoned and can only be healed in Ireland is part of the original story, and that's how he meets La Belle Isolde. So we need to keep Tristram poisoned, and we need to get him over, because we need to get him to Ireland, right? And we need to have him cured by La Belle Isolde so that they can meet and start their thing. Um, so Maori keeps all that stuff. But of course, here's the difference. In the French story... The dude in the Goliath position, the one who comes and defies the king of Cornwall and demands the truage and whom Tristram fights, is a giant, in fact. He's a monster. Um, He's a hideous giant whom everybody is terrified of. um, And it's no shock that his weapon is poisoned because he's a treacherous, monstrous, baby-eating creature, right? Um. Not quite as bad, I mean, I say baby-eating, of course, to recall the horrifying baby-eating giant of Mont Saint-Michel, but it's, it's, I mean, not the same guy, but like, you know, distant cousin of the Mont Saint-Michel giant. Like, it's that kind of giant, right? Um, so we have this monstrous uh, figure who does the poisoning, right? Um, and he's like the thug who enforces the will of the King of Ireland, right? So, okay. Um, So we still have the Irish as the Philistines. But the Goliath thing, again, in the original text, the Goliath thing works much better. We've got a really good Goliath. We've got a a perfect Saul. And we've got a King. We've got a David, right? So all three of them work out super well in the original story. 
Maori makes his change, right? He wants to keep it nightly. He doesn't... Now, notice he's not anti-giant on principle. Giant of Mont Saint-Michel, right? We've done that already. Um, so it's, in this sense, almost... Um, uh, it's, in this sense, almost uh, uh, curious that he decides to go against the giant route. He decides n- not to go the giant route here, right? Um, he's going to bring in... Uh, now, in part, I think this is... This seems to be the imposition of continuity. He's retconning here. Mallory is retconning the Tristram story. In the Tristram story, in the old, in the French Tristram stories... Ireland is a black box, right? I mean, we don't. Who knows anything about Ireland? Right? We don't even know how many kings there are in Ireland, right? So, in the French stories of Tristram, you know, when there's like something over in Ireland, it's like it might as well be in, you know, uh, it might as well it might as well be in Japan, Takako, right? I mean, who? It's like some island. It's way out over there where people are strange and it's different and it's far away and it's alien and remote from us, right? So he goes over to the exotic land of Ireland and there he meets La Belle Isolde, right? Um, uh, so that in the French story, that's kind of how it works. But Maori, he's already got Irish knights, right? Um, we already, remember we had one son of the King of Ireland already killed. And remember King Mark showed up soon afterwards, back in the, in the story of Sir Balin, right? Um, and then, of course, we get we get another uh, uh, Marhalt, of course, as we know, he's like the Irish guy. So Maori seems to be kind of feeling, I don't know, feeling himself stuck, essentially. Um, David, I don't know of any earlier precedent for Marhalt having this role. I think that this is this seems to be, as far as I know, this is a Maori choice, right? Um, and so, you know, why Marhalt? Uh, why pick a known knight of the round table as opposed to coming up with a new treacherous knight? My primary answer to that is retcon, like retroactive consistency. If the king of Ireland... Because, see, here's the other thing. The king of Meyer, of Ireland, when we meet King Anguishans of Ireland, he turns out to be kind of a stand-up guy, actually, right? He's not a villain, we don't want the King of Ireland. Maori doesn't want the King of Ireland to be this monstrous villain of a strange, far, faraway island. He's part of the Arthurian realm, right? We meet him on other occasions. We've already met, we've already seen one of his sons get killed by Sir Balin, right? I mean, he's part of the world. And Sir Marhalt is his is is his son. And Sir Marhalt is the greatest, he's the highest ranking of all of the Irish knights. So there is no question that if this situation arises, right? That is the truage is is overdue. That you know the the um, the tribute that Cornwall owes to Ireland for whatever reason we don't really know um, is overdue by seven years. What's he going to do? Since you know he's um, um, since he uh, that is King Anguishans is is a stand up guy, right? What's he going to do? He's going to send a champion, right? And he's going to send the best he's got, which is Sir Marhalt. We know this, right? So if he sent somebody else other than Sir Marhalt within the world of, within Maori's Arthurian world, um, it would be weird. Like, why would he do that? Um, I, I don't, uh, like, 
there would be no excuse for him if he sent a, if 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 he Mallory did invent some other legitimately wicked poison using knight, um, then that makes King Anguishance a bad guy. I mean, you just can't get around it, right? I mean, if he's going to hire some underhanded treasonous thug uh, to go and demand the truage, then there's no defense for him. King Anguishance, I mean, right? So Mallory seems to be kind of stuck, I guess, right? I would say. Um, And so he makes this kind of controversial decision. And in the end, Mallory seems to do, seems to handle it in a kind of a Mallory sort of way, right? On the one hand, he does his retcon thing. Okay, so Ireland is not an unknown island. It's part of the, it's part of the, part of the world, right, that we've been building here. Um, We know, you know, what would King Anguishans do? He would send Marhalt. That's a no-brainer, right? Um, Okay, but we still need Tristram to be poisoned. So what are we going to, are we going to make up a story of how Sir Marhalt, like, uh, as Tarwaniel suggests, fell to the dark side, right? Uh, has, like, you know, converted and become a Sith Lord and now uses a poisoned lance. No, no, we're not going to do that because I I, I think Maori likes Marhalt too. Um, so he, he doesn't want that. So what does he do? Just leaves an inconsistency. No problem. Notice how the text doesn't make any big deal of this at all. Nobody, nobody in the text asks the question, why would Sir Marhalt poison his spear? Right? This is an absent question in the text. We might care about this. The text does not seem to care about this. Um, This seems to be the one question that, like, Maori just kind of wants us not to ask, I think. Because, again, he we've seen him before willing to, like, Excalibur, remember, right? He's willing just to leave inconsistencies. Um... So it's just like, roll with it, people, <laughs> right? Just, just roll with it. Um, so, uh, so yeah, there's, um, uh, and Josiah, yes, good. There's another positive reason for Maori to have a Knight of the Round Table be the one who's coming to demand the truage, and that is it puts King Mark in the position of not being able to ask any other knight of the round table to fight as his champion, because none of them will do it. None of them will fight with Marhalt, right? So he needs to find a champion. So it puts King Mark in a, in a, in a tighter position too, right? Um, yeah, yeah, it does. Um, and so Sir Tristram ends up coming in and being like the magic bullet, right? The one who can overcome Sir Marhalt, but he's not you know, uh, uh, not already affiliated with the round table. And it's going to be a while before Tristram's a knight of the round table. It's not going to happen automatically. Um, yeah. Okay. So work with it. We're in Ireland and he needs help. He can only be, cause of course you can only be cured in Ireland from an Irish poison. This is a thing. And it, it's, this is not just like, uh, this poison is only known in Ireland, so only the Irish have the antidote for it. Um, this is a kind of a bigger thing than that. Remember, <laughs> remember that the necrophiliac sorceress used this technique too, right? Remember the bait that the necrophiliac sorceress was using for Lancelot was the corpse of the knight <clears throat> who injured another knight. Uh, because only by the sword and the blood 
of the knight who killed him could he be healed. So there was a an enchanted wound in knight A, right? And the only way that that enchantment could be broken and his wound healed was if it was searched with the blood of the knight who wounded him. Right. So this is kind of a, this is a this is a thing. Right. But it's a magical thing. It's not a it's not an herb lore thing. It's not a physic thing. It's a magic thing. Right. Um, uh, is sort of, so I assume you remember, like, talk about, you know, um, uh, something that will make doctors, modern doctors cringe. Right? Remember what Lancelot does is takes a, a piece of cloth and dips it in the blood of the long dead knight and then takes that bloody cloth and searches, the, like rubs it in the open wounds of the other knight in order to heal him, right? And it's like, <laughs> don't put on your modern medical hat when you're reading that scene, right? Uh, it's just, just, that works. And he's healed, right? That's, that's what, that's what happens, Right. Just 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 roll with it. Just roll with it. Um, So anyway, that's the sense in which we're here in Ireland. That's why we're here in Ireland. Okay, Thon the king, for a great favor, made Tramtrist. He disguises his name. Right. Ah, my name is Sir Tramtrist. Right. Because they'll never pick that up. Uh, Than the king, for great favor, made Tramtrist to be put in his doctor's award and keeping because she was a noble surgeon. And when she had searched him, she found in the bottom of his wound that therein was poison, and so she healed him in a while. And therefore Sir, Tris, Sir Tramtrist kissed great love to La Belle Isode, for she was at that time the firest lady and maiden of the world. And there Tramtrist learned her to harp, and she began to have a great fantasy unto him. So I... okay... Okay, so we have, like, how many adolescent fantasies can we fulfill in one shot, (laughs) right? First, we have the wounded knight and his nurse, right? She nurses him back to health, and he falls in love with her. And then immediately, right, we have... He's the harp teacher, right? The young girl's harp teacher, uh, whom she falls in love with. So it's like, okay... It's like, I don't know, this, like, amorous role-playing fantasy in two directions at the same time, which is kind of mind-blowing. But, um, uh, (laughs) anyway, um, uh, yeah, yeah, um, yeah, and I'm done talking about that. (laughs) But, um, so, again, notice another small. Uh, did you notice, by the way, the uh, continuity issue in that paragraph? Anybody spot the continuity problem? Which, again, Mallory just runs smack into and can't get around. What's our continuity problem? It's not that Mallory doesn't make an attempt. He gets around it, but only on the barest technicality. Sakaya, you've got it. La Belle Isode, for she was at that time the firest lady and maiden of the world. Exactly. Yeah, Devra, Guinevere is the fairest lady of the world, right? That's not up for debate. That's a clearly established canonical fact. 
But of course, in the Tristram and Isolde world, which is a totally different world, La Belle Isolde is who's called La Belle Isolde all the time, right? The beautiful Isolde. Um, uh, her first name is the beautiful, right? So you know she's really pretty. She's the most beautiful woman in the world. So we have two number ones, right? So how he gets around it? Notice he, 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 he I mean, this is cunning, right? He kind of lawyers his way out of this problem. Tarlonio has it exactly. The finest Lottie and Maiden of the world. Ah, she's the fairest maiden of the world. Because we can technically put her in a different category from Guinevere, we can still make that statement. Because Guinevere is not a maiden anymore. She's married, right? Um, so it's all good, right? So, okay, so we can have two number ones because they're number ones in slightly different categories. It's like being the champion of the world in two different weight classes, right? I, it's kind of like that in a way, sort of. Of course, that dodge is only going to work for so long where La Belle Isode is concerned, but there it is. Okay. Um, and uh, yes, Kai was interested of his uh, at the use of his word fantasy. She began to have a great fantasy unto him. Um, not in the sense in which I was talking about fantasies being enacted here. Um, she, um, she began to have notions. Right. She began to imagine things about herself and Tramtrist. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, and at that time, Sir Palamides the Saracen drew unto La Bellisode and proffered her many gifts, for he loved her passingly well. All that espied Tramtrist, and full well he knew Sir Palamides for a noble knight and a michty man. And wit you well, Sir Tramtrist had great despite at Sir Palamides, for La Bellisode told Tramtrist that Palamides was in will to be christened for Hirsak. Thus was there great envy betwixt Tramtrist and Sir Palamides. Okay, so Tramtrist gets his antagonist, right? Sir Palamides loves La Belle Isode, and he is proffering her many gifts because he loves her passing well. Um, and yes, uh, Palamides is still actually a Muslim here, right? He is a Saracen. He is the Muslim knight, and he is not yet a Christian. Um, the implication here, he is offering to be christened for her sake so that he could marry her because he would not be able to marry her uh, without becoming a Christian first, right? Um, so his offer to be christened for her sake is kind of a big deal and is tantamount to a marriage proposal, at least it's is so. Here's Palamides, who falls in love with La Bellisode because she's the most beautiful maiden in the world, and he like is totally ready to make an honest woman of her, right? You know, he's going about this. He's he's got pure intentions. He's offering gifts. He's playing nice. He's 
uh, he's a well-proven knight of prowess. Remember, he's number four. When Sir Person of Inn gave us the leaderboard at that time, he cited Sir Palamides or possibly Sir Palamides' brother, Sir Saphir, as number four. Right there, right up there. He's top five in the world, Sir Palamides. Right? And Tristram respects him for a noble knight and a michty man. But the two of them have great envy betwixt each other. Now, envy is a bad word. Envy is a big deal. That's one of the seven deadlies. Um, envy is a problem. Um, there's no, there's no getting around that. I mean, it's not to say that you know, like anybody who envies anybody is obviously a horrible, horrible person. Like, it's a natural failing, right, to envy someone else. Um, or to envy something. Um, but, but it's, it's shaky. It's shaky. Sir Tristram is on shaky moral ground here from the beginning. Um, right now they're just rivals, right? Both of them rivals for the very beautiful and unmarried maiden daughter of the King of Ireland. All legit so far. Um, but one of them is a Saracen who is wooing her from a polite distance, and the other is her harp teacher, <laughs> right? Um, oh, dear me. And Juan Sir Palamides had received his... Fo- so they're having the tournament, right? They meet each other in the tournament over there in Ireland, and Sir Palamides is doing great. Sir Palamides... He's like winning the entire day. He goes and he beats person after person after person, right? And then Sir Tramtrist comes in and knocks him down, right? Kind of like Sir Lancelot didn't, right? And Juan Sir Palamides had received his fall. Weet ye well, he was sore ashamed, and as privily as he meeked, he withdrew him out of the field. All that aspired Sir Tramtrist, and leakly he rode after Sir Palamides, and overtook him, and bade him turn, for better he wold sigh him, or ever he departed. Fan Sir Palamides turned him, and either lashed at other with their swearedis. But at the first stroke, Sir Tristramis smote down Sir Palamides, and gaff him such a stroke upon the head, that he fell to the earth. And so then, Sir Tristram's bade him yield him and do his commandment. Other Ellis, he would slay him. What Sir Palam- Once Sir Palamides beheld his countenance, he dried his buffets so that he grounded all his askings. Well, said Sir Tramtrist, this shall be your charge. First, upon pine of your life, that ye forsake my laddie, la belle Isode, and in no manner of wise that ye draw no more to her. Also, this twelve month and a die, that ye bear none armies, nother none harness of wear? No promise me this, other here thou shalt die. Alas, sighed Sir Palamides, for ever I am shamed. Then he swore, as Sir Tristramas had commanded him, so for despite and anger, Sir Palamides cut off his harness and threw them away. Cutting up your plate mail, that is, he's like severing, like cutting the, the straps and everything. Uh, that so uh, then he chucks away the pieces uh, of the plate mail. That's kind of a big deal, right? Okay, this is going to be our last slide, so it's just a, a few comments here. 
it is very hard not to think of that passage from Sir Lancelot that we were discussing at the beginning of class, right? It's not that Sir Tristram does everything wrong here, but notice we see enacted here exactly what Lancelot was saying he wanted to avoid. First, we have Sir Tristram who comes in and overcomes Sir Palamides when he seemed to be doing so well, right? He was having a really good day. Now, he hadn't totally won. He wasn't quite as as high up as Sir Gareth was that day, right? Um, but he was, he was definitely going to win, right? Uh, and then Tristram comes and knocks him off his horse. And okay, you know, like, it's not, again, the, the, it's not exactly like the Lancelot and Gareth situation. It's not, Gareth, you know, a, a Tristram hasn't been sitting out all day. There's not a, it's not unfair. Um, but we see a kind of an echo of it. But then more importantly, remember the reasons that Lancelot gave. Why he's worried, like the consequences that he wants to make sure don't happen, right, uh, if he intervenes. And that is chiefly, what if this guy, whoever he is, is trying to prove something in a quarrel or is trying to please his lady, right? Because he's trying really hard. Um Sir Tramtrist doesn't, you know, Tristram doesn't just deprive Sir Palamides of his worship, right? He embarrasses him in front of La Belle Isote, which, of course, Tristram is happy to do because he's his rival, right? Um, uh, and then he chases after Sir Palamides leaves, right? Like, in he, he's feeling shame and frustration. And he just leaves, um, which I think is not a good look for Palamides either at that point. Tristram follows him. He won't let him go. And he says he wants to better assay him. He wants to measure himself against him more fully. Right? Let's fight with swords, having fought, having taken a pass with lances where I pretty much mopped the floor with you, Sir Palamides. Let's try swords. And Palamides is game. This is private now. Remember, they've run off. So they're not in the public eye anymore. And either lash it at other with their sweaters. And it sounds like we're going to have one of these, you know, uh, foining and tracing and traversing. And But no, we don't get, they don't even get to be like Tuo Boris or anything like that. Um, Palamides starts with the lashing with the swords, but at the first stroke, Sir Tristram smites him down. Right? It's totally unequal between the two of them, right? Um, Sir Tristram just humiliates him again. Then he threatens to kill him and exacts the promise. Two promises. One, forsake La Belle Zone. Give it up. Stop pursuing the lady that you love. That's hard. That's hard. And... Don't bear arms or harness of war for a year and a day. That's also hard. These are stiff penalties. These are significant demands. Are they monstrously horrible demands? No, but Michelle, your question is a very good one. You know, is this stuff, is it going a bit too far? It is at, I don't know if it's too far, but it's quite far. Again, remember Sir Lancelot's attitude, not just the things that he said, but his attitude, right? Oh, let him have his worship, right? He, he's, there's plenty of worship to share. 
Lancelot's reputation is going to be diminished by what, you know, what he does. Remember that the envy was mutual between Palamides and Tristram. That Tristram says, I will kill you if you don't, A, give up on Isolde. Now, that's hard, but again, under the circumstances, you can say, you could translate that as Tristram saying, this is you losing, right? We, we, we fought for Isolde, and I won, so take it like a man, right? That would be one way to translate what Tristram is saying. The second thing, however, don't bear harness of war for a year and a day. That's him. That's humiliation, right? That is him because Palamides is going to have to explain that. He's depriving, not just depriving him of worship in the sense that he took him out on this day, right? That he beat him and everybody knows that he beat him in public, but that he is going to make it impossible for Palamides to do anything to recuperate his reputation for an entire year. That seems a little much. Again, I think... I think he's being harsh with Palamides here. Besides which, there's no reason for him to kill him anyway, right? Um, why should he be saying, now promise me this, uh, other here thou shalt die? Why should he die at all here, right? This is a friendly tournament, wasn't it? So, um, I, uh, um, I really, uh, this doesn't seem to me a really good move by Tristram here. Again, notice, he's not being awful, right? He's not a wicked knight. He's not murdering anybody. He's, you know, but it's hard to get fully behind him. It's a, the rivalry is real, right? Um, it's a, it's, it's a situation that you can kind of get behind. You can imagine how he would feel this way, right? Having defeated his rival, wanting to rub his rival's nose in the dirt, right? Wanting to make sure that his rival packs himself out of town and doesn't come back. I think we could all relate to those impulses, but they don't look great when they're acted out, right? Um, It's uncomfortable. Watching Sir Tristram here, I find distinctly uncomfortable. Um... Yeah, Stephen, there is a huge gap between not evil and actively good, and Sir Tristram is definitely occupying that moral space here, isn't he? Um, okay, well, soon after this, of course, uh, uh, Trumtrist's devious disguise is going to be pierced uh, when his mother-in-law takes the bit of sword that she drew out of her son's brain pan and kept and and does her forensic thing with his sword and and uh uh finds that it fits in his sword and realizes that her son is the is the murder it's like you know CSI Ireland uh and he is convicted of uh, uh being the knight who killed uh Sir Marhalt uh and we'll see what comes of that um but um uh anyway we'll pick up with the adventures of Sir Tristram when things start to get even sketchier in Sir Tristram's life. And maybe we'll even get so far as the really awkward wedding uh, with King Mark.
and we'll certainly get to the beginning of the unpleasantness between Tristram and King Mark. So this, of course, will all happen next week. I'll let you guys go. This will all happen next week, assuming the World Series doesn't go to seven games. Um, but um, excellent. See, Brian, I was very careful. There were a couple times I almost made comments, but I didn't say anything. Uh, glad you are still ignorant of what happened in the baseball game, uh, Brian. Uh, I, again, totally relate to that. I've been there many times. All right. Um, oh, yeah, Sorry. Kadriana, you're right. Marholt was her brother, not her son. Thank you for that correction. Okay. Thanks, everybody. I will uh, see you guys probably next week. Uh, See some of you in L.A. this weekend, which I'm really excited about. Um, But sooner or later, we shall return to the story of Sir Tristram. Uh, Thanks, everybody. Good night.